Would you open God's precious holy word to 2 Kings 8? And tonight we also return to 2 Chronicles, and we'll be in chapter 21 there, reading the parallel accounts of certain events. <clears throat> Do you remember the Shunammite woman? She helped and fed Elisha. What was it, back in chapter 4 maybe? I don't know, way back there. And then she uh, miraculously had a child in her old age. He died. Elisha raised him from the dead. She has been a prominent uh, supporter, I guess, of of Elisha in his ministry. And two or three of his miracles were centered around her. And another one will be tonight as well in the passage we're going to look at. So in chapter eight to start off with, you may recall in previous chapters that uh, a famine had come upon the land and uh, Elisha uh, helped her in, in the time of the famine. I think, let's just look at it here. Now, Elisha had spoken to the woman he had revived, saying, Get up and go, you and your household, and sojourn in a place suitable for you to sojourn. For Yahweh has decreed a famine. It is destined to come upon the land for seven years. The prophet knows of the coming famine also knows of the uh, duration of the famine. Now remember, she was a, a landowner. She was a fair, fairly well-to-do woman, had a fairly large household with servants and all. <clears throat> and the woman got up and did according to the word of the man of God. And she and her household went, and she sojourned in the land of Philistines for seven years. Now that particular, she found a place, there was a place there where the famine had not uh, stricken the people or the land. And so there was, uh, there, there were goods and services available. And she uprooted her household and went there, obviously being a woman of, of means. So Elisha, Another thing about Elisha, here it is, he's concerned to, to, to recall and to recount. He has been uh, notably effective in uh, the households of kings on battlefields where more than one king and one army, more than one army uh, was engaged. He was also keenly aware of personal needs. You may recall the widow of the disciple uh, who had the jar of oil and he performed a miracle for her. And here's another very personable thing. Obviously, this woman is, is, is dear to Elisha's heart because of the way that she had provided for him on the well-traveled road from Bethel to Samaria, the two main places where Elisha ministered and uh, taught <clears throat> the schools, schools of the prophets. 
So she had a room built for him. You may recall all of that. And he had a place he could stay whenever he needed to and always plenty of, of food to eat. Not only then had he uh, miraculously prophesied of her, uh, the birth of her child, but then raised her child, her son from the dead, and now is there to assist her again in a very personal and personable way in uh, telling her that she needed to find a place and she had time at this point. You know, you have time, you need to look around, find a place where uh, there's plenty and you need to locate there, relocate there until the famine is over and it'll be over in seven years. So she, you know, she benefited from her friendship and personal knowledge, her friendship with and personal knowledge of Elisha the prophet. So she sojourned there for seven years. And it came about at the end of seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines and she went out to complain to the king about her house and about her field. People, other people had taken over. They had moved in. Uh, they were squatters, uh, so to speak. It was a very nice place, almost a villa the way that it was described earlier in uh, Second Kings. But having been gone seven years, other people have come in and just taken over. Now the king was speaking to Gehazi. Now this guy turned out, of course, Gehazi, the, the servant of uh, Elisha. He turned out to be a bad guy. And whether, or not, whether he's restored or whatever, He's still in the picture. And you may recall, he's well acquainted with the, uh, the Shunammite woman. And so the king of Judah, uh, of, of, of Israel, was speaking to the man of God, saying, please tell me all the great things that Elisha performed the king obviously interested in because Elisha had been something of a help to him along the way and he's uh, enamored with the miracle working power of Elisha, uh, the man of God. Tell me all about what he's been doing. And it was while he was telling the king that he revived the dead or he restored to life the, the woman whose son had he had restored to life, complained to the king about her house and about her field. And Gehazi said, my Lord, the king, this is the woman and this is her son whom Elisha revived or restored to life. So you, you can see the sovereignty of God. This happens all just at the same time. Elisha comes to the mind of the king. The servant who had been connected with Elisha is there. He was personally acquainted with the woman and the events of her life, especially with regard to Elisha and his miracles there. So one of the things when the king asked, he said, well, let me tell you about what happened to this woman and then her son. While he's telling it, there she is. Well, this is her. She just came up to see you. And the king asked the woman and she told him. And the king appointed for her one eunuch and said, return all her property and all the produce of the field from the day she left until now. 
So the king would see to it that her property was restored back to the way that it was and that whatever the property had produced during that time, she would be paid for it. She was not going to be out anything at all. And the king ordered this. Well, that was just sort of an insertion of a personable story, but it also reveals uh, another of the miracles of Elisha. But now moving on, Hazael murders Ben-Hadad. Let's continue on here in verse 8. Elisha came to Damascus, that's Aram, that's Syria, when Ben-Hadad was ill, the king. And it was told him, saying, the man of God is coming here. The king said to Hazael, take a gift in your hand. Now Hazael, at this point, <clears throat> is the king's chief servant. Um, just under the king, probably the head of state. Take a gift in your hand, go toward the man of God, and inquire of Yahweh from him, saying, will I recover from this illness? Now this is an interesting uh, response. Hazael went toward him and he took a gift in his hand and all the bounty of Damascus, a load of 40 camels. Now that's quite a caravan. Here's a big caravan coming from the king to Elisha and he's going to give him all this stuff. And he came and stood before him and said, your son Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, has sent me to you saying, will I recover from this illness? And Elisha said to him, go say to him, you will live, but Yahweh has shown me that he will die. Now notice the question. His question is, if you want to look at it, flip it over and look at it from the other way, am I going to die from this illness? Well, Elisha said, no, you're not going to die from this illness. You're going to live for this. <laughs> but he says to Hazael, he said, he'll live through the illness, but he's going to die. He's going to die another way. And Elisha said to him, you will, go tell him you'll live, but Yahweh show me he'll die. And he made his face expressionless and held it a long time. And then the man of God wept. And Hazael said, why does my Lord weep? And he said, because I know the evil that you will do to the sons of Israel. You will set fire to their fortresses and you will slay their youths with the sword. And you will dash their infants and you will rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael, now he's the second in command. Hazael said, now what is your servant, the dog, that he shall perform this mighty deed? And Elisha said, Yahweh has shown you to me as king over Aram. So Yahweh has revealed to Elisha that this man, and he already, we're going to see here, he already has it in his heart. He already is conspiring and plotting to become the king. And so, you know, Elisha says, Yahweh has shown me. What's going on? What's going to happen here? He went away from Elisha, came to his master, and he said to him, what did Elisha say to you? He said, and he said, he said to me, you'll live. But the next day, he took a blanket, that is, uh, Hazael, took a blanket, dipped it in water, and spread it on his face, after which he died, and Hazael reigned in his stead. Now, here's what he did. He waterboarded him to death. That's how he killed him. He took a, the, the word for blanket there is a word that speaks of um, cloth that holds a lot of water. 
uh, it was used for that to carry water as a matter of it was carried in the in this uh, particular kind of cloth. So this cloth, he was smothered with his cloth, and the cloth was filled with water, and it was spread on his face, and he died. And Hazael reigned in his stead, just like Yahweh had said through the prophet. So Hazael murdered the king. He, he, he drowned him. He waterboarded him to death. If you want to call it that, that's how he died. He smothered him with a blanket full of uh, water and held it there until the king was dead. Now we go back down to Judah. Now, according to where you're, whether you're reading 2 Kings or 2 Chronicles, Jehoram is, is called either Jehoram or Joram. And they're both the same thing and they're both proper spellings. It's just that uh, the guttural is in one, the, the H is in one, in one of the accounts and not in the other. But he's the same guy. Now, we're, for, the, for the first time, really, we're going to see back-to-back wickedness in Judah. We've seen nothing good in the northern kingdom, kingdom of Israel. And now for the span of the reign of two kings, we're not, going to see, we're not going to see any good from them either. And the first one is Jehoram down in the southern kingdom. He's a son of David. In the fifth year of Jehoram, the son of Ahab, don't get this confused now. You got a Jehoram and a Jehoram. The king of Israel and Jehoshaphat king of Judah, Jehoram king of Judah became king. He was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. Now let me set the bigger setting here that'll mean more to us as we study the rest of this particular account. Jehoshaphat was a good king. He didn't tear down all of the high places so he He was flawed in the sense that he didn't completely gut the land from idolatry. But he did great things for Yahweh, and Yahweh blessed him. Jehoshaphat's reign as king was also blessed by Yahweh. The the land grew in prosperity and wealth. Jehoshaphat expanded the uh, military and the treasure cities uh, and the sentinel cities so that it was very secure and the land and the people were very wealthy, very prosperous nation. All this happened under Jehoshaphat who was for all practical purposes a good king. But there was a major flaw that comes to roost and haunts his household and it was this. If you go back, you you will recall For some reason, Jehoshaphat wanted to be buddies with Ahab. Ahab was getting bullied by other kings and kings. And he goes to Jehoshaphat, who had a much stronger nation and a much stronger army. And none of these armies would dare to stand up against Judah. And he came and he said, hey, you need to, can you help me out here? Jehoshaphat went all, you know, he just got all blubbery. And he said, hey, we're brothers. We're the same. You and I are one. And my army is your army. And we're, we're together in this thing. 
So he goes and he helps Ahab. Remember Ahab? The Bible says there was no more wicked king in all of Israel than Ahab, whose queen was Jezebel. They were horrible. They were, sin was deeply rooted in their hearts and lives. They introduced on a massive scale idolatry and Baal worship. So this man's very home, his wife, his queen, Jezebel, everything about his reign, the uh, Samaria, his palace, everything that surrounded him was connected to Baal worship, idolatry. And yet Jehoshaphat, this good king, for some reason, wanted to befriend and be buddies with Ahab. So Jehoshaphat likely would uh, have his sons with him sometimes when they would, you know, they'd barbecue together out in the backyard of the palace, whatever. And it is evident that their families would commingle from time to time. This is how close Jehoshaphat got to be with uh, Ahab and the household of Ahab, which was replete with demonic worship. Now, it's like, I'll, I'll give you an example. There was a guy when I was in the clothing business, very young. And my cousin, my younger cousin worked there uh, with me. And there was a guy that was a, a very well-to-do traveling salesman. He, he, he represented the main suit line that we had. It was called Palm Beach back in those days. And it was probably the biggest suit line, men's suits, in, in the country. And he had just about the biggest area. He made a lot of money, this guy did. And, uh, you know, he, he always wore these real fancy suits and, and he had all this jewelry on. And he would come to the store on a regular basis because we were one of his main accounts in that area. And so he got to talking to Joey and me one time he had recently divorced his wife and he'd let his, he'd let his hair grow, his hair grow longer and he kind of sporterized his look a little bit. You know, you could tell he was, well, he was different than what he used to be when he was married. He divorced his wife. And so he's, you know, he's out, I don't know, looking for women, I guess, I don't know. But he said he stood there and talked to Joey and me about his new lifestyle. He'd got him a big Harley motorcycle. He had a couple of pictures and he would dress in the, you know, he would dress in the motorcyclist dress, the leather and stuff. And uh, he would take long vacations and he would go across the country on his Harley. And he carried a pup tent and stuff with him as he traveled and he talked about the free life camping out doing all this stuff and going through these places and having a big time when he'd go into the towns and all with his big Harley 
And Joey and I were younger guys. We were just mesmerized, you know. We're thinking, man, I want a Harley. I want to get on a motor. My daddy called them motorcycles. I want to get on a motorcycle. And I just want to break all the surly bonds of earth (laughs) and set myself Daddy heard this, and that daddy was up there waiting on people. You know, you never stop him from working. He finally had enough. He came over there, and he said, move aside, boys. He looked that guy in the eye. He said, shut up all that stuff. He said, you're making these boys think that that's a good life, and you know it's not. It's not a good life for them to think they can get out here and not work, get on a motorcycle and sleep in a tent in the edge of the woods, when it gets to be nighttime, that's not a good life at all. He said, you're, you're trying to have an influence on them, and that's a bad influence. He told me, he said, just shut up. Don't say any more of that stuff to them. You're here to sell me suits, and that's all you're here to do. You're not here to talk about how you like this kind of life that's foolish and that's just not a real life for anybody. They need to know how to work, and they need to know how to produce and they need to know how to have a solid home. And they don't need to be cut loose from home life like you think you've been. And you just don't say that stuff. I'm not going to have it. That was just one example. My daddy, we'd go to Florida. On the rare times we'd go to Florida. We would drive 50 miles or however how far we had to go to go to a restaurant that didn't serve alcoholic beverages. <laughs> Back then you could find them. You can't find them now. But my daddy didn't want any kind of influence on his children. No kind of negative influence at all. Anything that was unreal. Now here's where Jehoshaphat went wrong. He let that salesman have too much time with his sons, okay? Obviously, they fell in love with the kind of life that Ahab and his sons were living when they would go into that land. We're going to see how that works itself out here. Jehoshaphat, one of the greatest kings of the era, son of David, and now he's dead. His oldest son, Jehoram, becomes the king of uh, Judah. And he reigned in Jerusalem. That's where the temple was. That's everything that's holy about the covenant relationship between Yahweh and Israel. The son of David on the throne, all that was there, represented in Jerusalem. This is where his throne is. He sits on, the son, on, the, on David's throne, right? He went in the way of the kings of Israel. As the house of Ahab had done. For a daughter of Ahab became his wife, and he did what was bad in Yahweh's eyes. Now, can you see, as good as Jehoshaphat was, his great fault was that he didn't oversee the relationships and the influences that were coming to bear in the lives of his children, especially his oldest one here. Jehoram. And it takes note here. He did just like the kings of Israel did. He did just like the house of Ahab did. He enjoyed it so much, he started dating 
Ahab's daughter, who herself must have been a priestess because Jezebel was a priestess. And then he married her. She became his wife and he became evil in the eyes of Yahweh. Now Yahweh was unwilling to destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David, as he had said to him to give him a kingdom for his sons forever always. In other words, it's an eternal cut, co- this Davidic covenant. It's an eternal covenant. God's going to protect his covenant. Now let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 21 and see what the account says here about that. Jehoshaphat slept with his forefathers, buried with his forefathers in the seed of David. Jehoram his son reigned in his stead. He had brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariahu, Michael, Shephatiah. All these were sons of Jehoshaphat, the king of Israel. So they were the brothers of Jehoram. They grew up together, right? Their father gave them many gifts of silver, gold, and precious things with fortified cities in Judah. But the kingdom he gave to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. So Jehoshaphat, the good man, good father, loved his kids, and he wanted all of them to prosper. But only one could be king. That would be the oldest one. So he gave them all huge sums of money and gave them places where they could live and be protected, and what he gave them could be protected as well. But Jehoram became king, and Jehoram rose upon the kingdom of his father, and he strengthened himself and assassinated all of his brothers with a sword and also the chieftains of Israel. Now, think about this. The Davidic covenant teeters on the brink of disaster here because there's just this one guy, Jehoram, right? He assassinates, he wants to strengthen his hold on the throne and he doesn't want any rivalry at all and the only ones that could give him any kind of problem were his brothers and he killed them all. He had them all killed and also the chieftains of Israel so that now he would replace them with whoever would be loyal to him. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he went in the ways of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab did, for a daughter of Ahab became his wife, and he did that which was evil in, in Yahweh in the sight of, or in the eyes of Yahweh, in Yahweh's eyes. Now Yahweh was unwilling to destroy the house of David because of the covenant he had made with David, as he said to give him a kingdom and give him a kingdom and to his sons forever, always. So that's the Second Chronicles account of what was in Second Kings. Now we go back to Second Kings, uh, chapter eight. Life is not easy for an evil king in Judah. Yahweh is watching him. So Edom and Libna revolt. These surrounding vassal states, nations, in the in the under the strong rule of Jehoshaphat paid taxes. And so they, they were, they had to pay a part of what their gross national product was into the coffers of the king of of Judah, Jehoshaphat. And in that way, he would not attack them and he would sort of protect them from other people attacking them. So he was making all kind of money doing this. Well, here we go in, in chapter eight verses, beginning verse 20. In his days, in Jehoram's days, 
Edom rebelled from under the power of Judah and they appointed a king over themselves. And Jordan went over to Zaire and all the chariots were with him. He got up at night and struck the Edomites who came around to him and the officers of the chariots and the people fled to their dwellings. And Edom rebelled from under the power of Judah until this day. Then Libna rebelled at that time and the remaining events of Jordan and all that he did are written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah. Joram slept with his forefathers and was buried with his forefathers in the city of David. Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his stead. Now, to, to get the expanded version of the death of Joram or Jehoram, we go back to 2 Chronicles 22. In his days, Edom rebelled from under the power of Judah. They appointed a king over themselves. Jehoram crossed with his chieftains and all the chariots with him, and he arose at night. He smote the Edomites who surrounded him and the chiefs of the chariots. And Edom rebelled from under the power of Judah until this day. Then Libna rebelled at that time from under his power because he had forsaken Yahweh, the God of his fathers. So here in Second Chronicles, we have a little bit more of a theological explanation. This happened to him for spiritual reasons. He too made high places in the mountains of Judah and led the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray and led Judah astray. Okay, so he does in Judah what Ahab had done in the northern kingdom, namely uh, building high places, places of worship to Baal and to false gods. Not just anywhere, but in the city of Jerusalem where the very temple was located and where the very throne of the son of David and his sons was located. Great, strong covenantal relationship there. And he led not only Jerusalem, the city, but all of Judah astray. So he's doing in Judah what Ahab had done in the northern kingdom of uh, Israel. Now there's a very interesting insertion here. You remember Elijah? He got translated to heaven several chapters back. He's gone. He's not on earth anymore. But he sends a letter to Jehoram. This is interesting. So we're in 2 Chronicles still chapter 1 and looking at verse 12, verses 12 through 15. So here's this evil, wicked king. A letter came to him from Elijah the prophet saying... So said Yahweh, the God of David, it should really be, it should be, so said Yahweh, the God of David, your father. Because you did not go in the ways of Jehoshaphat, your father, and in the ways of Asa, the king of Judah. You went in the way of the kings of Israel. And you led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray as the house of Ahab led astray. And also you assassinated your brothers of your father's house who were better than you. Now this is Elijah. A letter from Elijah who'd been in heaven for quite some time. Elijah, his translation, his disappearance would have taken a probably in the time of Jehoshaphat, so he would have known the oldest. He would have known the, the, the family of Jehoshaphat. Great prophet Elijah, 
is enlightened by Yahweh before he is translated into heaven of what one of these little boys will become when he becomes a man. He'll become a king. And what's going to happen to his brothers? The great prophet wrote a letter. Jehoshaphat would still have been king. And he would have addressed this. This is really significant. Here's what you did. I'm not there. I wasn't there when it happened. I wasn't there when you grew up, but I know. Yahweh told me. Yahweh enlightened me. This is what you've done. You've been the same as Ahab. Now remember, Elijah was the prophet of judgment upon the house of Ahab. Assassinated your brothers, and they were all better than you. Behold, Yahweh will smite your people with a great plague. And your sons and your wives and all your possessions. And you will have many illnesses with the illness of your bowels. Until your bowels come out. Because of the illness. Days upon days. <laughs> I, I, you know, let me think about this. So the chef, he puts hot sauce on everything this king eats, right? I don't know. Which makes, which makes the bowels coming out even more uncomfortable. Now that's the gospel according to Charles. You can take it or leave it. But this guy gets the trots. And he gets worse and worse and worse and worse until the very part of his body that's producing what's giving him so much trouble itself begins to dissolve and disintegrate. Now, having had the stomach virus a few times in my life, I'm going to hazard a guess that this was extremely uncomfortable, painful. Nobody wanted to go into the room where the king was. Here's what happens. His um, problem, his illness, it's so bad until it absolutely destroys and dissolves his bowels. Look at this. The illness. Days upon days. Man. You know, about the second day and I've had enough. Not so with this guy. Now just think of Elijah writing this letter. <laughs> Maybe he enjoyed writing it. Oh, this is going to be a good one, Lord. Maybe that'll say something to the rest of them. And so he is punished greatly because of his sin. And the prophecy comes to him from out of the past, from a prophet who isn't even on the earth anymore. It's amazing. So then here's the account in 2 Chronicles 21. Yahweh stirred up against 
Jehoram, the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabians who dwell alongside the Cushites. Now you can see that Yahweh is in absolute sovereign control of the nations. The Philistines and the Arabians would have never, and the Cushites, they would have never said to you, ah, the spirit of Yahweh is stirring us to do bad things. They wouldn't have said that. They would have thought it was their own plans. But it was Yahweh because he had a purpose behind it. They marched upon Judah and split it. They captured all the possessions found belonging to the king's house, also his sons, his wives, and no son was left to him except Jehoahaz, the youngest of his sons. Can you see how close the house of David came to destruction? And here, you remember we read how Jehoshaphat gave all of his sons a lot of wealth? He gave them a lot of stuff and gave them fortified cities and safe places to live and to keep their money. It might have been the design of Jehoram to just move in and take all of their money and make it part of his. Well, that didn't get him very far. Because those guys moved in and split Judah. Captured all the possessions that were in the king's house. Killed his household except the youngest of his sons. After all this, Yahweh plagued him in his bowels with an incurable illness. And it was that in the passing of time, at the end of two years, can you, <laughs> two years, his bowels came out by reason of his illness. And he died with malignant illnesses. And his people did not make for him a burning like the burning of his forefathers. In other words, they didn't give him a funeral. They didn't burn incense, do all the stuff for the ritual, funeral rituals. He was 32 year old, years old when he began to reign. He reigned in Jerusalem for eight years and he departed to no one's sorrow. Nobody cried for him when he died. They buried him in the city of David, but not in the graves of the kings. So he died in shame and was separated from the rest of the kings and his grave would have been lost and the people were trying to forget him, I guess. Two years having violent stomach virus for two years. And it grew malignant illnesses. Oh well. To leave you with that pleasant thought, we will have the deacon prayer time and we will pray for all the people who have stomach virus tonight.